Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome once again to the Explaining History podcast, and today I'm going to talk about the beginnings of the Blitz, the bombing campaign over Britain in 1940, uh, which continued uh, ultimately till 1943, but its most intense phase was 1942-41. In the speech by George VI to the British during at the beginning of the Second World War, announcing that the country had gone to war, he makes the point of saying that war can no longer be confined to the battlefield. This was something that was well understood about the nature of the forthcoming conflict, in that the 1930s had seen the uh, implementation of civilian bombing by Germany in Spain, by Italy in Abyssinia, and by the Japanese in China. All powers were obsessed with aerial bombing, and all powers were um, well aware of the consequences of aerial bombing. So whilst it was unknown what shape a land war against Nazi Germany would take, the war that everyone was really expecting in Britain was the Blitz. And it was the war that everyone in Britain was fearing and had feared since September 1939 when the declaration of war was announced. Now the book that I'm reading from at the moment is Juliet Gardner's excellent uh, history of the Blitz entitled The Blitz, The British Under Attack. Uh, the other book that is uh, well worth a read by Juliet Gardner, in fact everything she's written is well worth a read, but um, the, uh, the 30s and intimate history um, really, kind of, uh, f- her history of Britain in the 1930s really feeds into uh, this uh, story of the Blitz, the, the first phase of Britain's war. She starts with a famous quote by Stanley Baldwin, who said to the House of Commons in 1932, I think it is well for the man on the street to realise that there is no power on earth that can prevent him from being bombed. Whatever people may tell him, the bomber will always get through. The only defence is offence which means that you have to kill more women and children more quickly than the enemy if you want to save yourselves. And there Baldwin was making the case for a renewed investment in British air power and the development of the means of waging uh, air war 
offensively, which is what Britain does eventually far more successfully than Germany, which lar with large fleets of four-engine bombers um, that would devastate Germany's cities. But that is ahead of us. Now we're going to look at the air war by Germany against Britain. And this will be uh, the first of several podcasts on the Blitz, because looking at questions such as evacuation and life for civilians under the Blitz is really very broad topic. So we, we're going to cover this bit by bit, take our time. Historians regard Saturday, September the 7th, 1940, as the first day of the Blitz. And obviously by this time, the war has been ongoing for a year and a week. The Battle of Britain has, by and large, all but come to uh, an end, and it has been concluded in the uh, German Air Force and other services, and in the mind of Hitler as well, that the project to invade Great Britain, always a second fiddle idea, really has to be put on the back burner indefinitely. There was, by September, a degree of complacency, that had uh, set in, the British public had long since stopped clutching their gas masks as the uh, apocalyptic attack using poison gas that was um, forecasted never materialises. Air raid shelters fall into disuse and some fill up with rainwater and, and rubbish and that sort of thing. And there are no more air raid patrol wardens being recruited. Uh, as many uh, volunteers have very little to do, um, spend a lot of their time uh, drinking cups of tea, smoking cigarettes, and generally uh, feeling frustrated about the lack of any actual real purpose, um, except for complaining about blackout curtains and uh, criticising members of the public for having their lights on at night. Evacuees who had joined the uh, government's evacuation scheme came uh, back home uh, by January 1940 uh, believing that there would be no mass bombing, that the whole thing was uh, an exaggeration and that there was no immediate threat to, to them and their families. Tragically, some who came back would be killed in, in the Blitz, unfortunately. However, Dunkirk, which I've talked about um, at length in the last few podcasts, Dunkirk seemed to have a galvanising effect on the public mood. There is a quote here in Juliet Gardner's book with one of her eyewitnesses who said, um, I remember at the Sainsbury's where I worked, somebody coming into the warehouse with an almost uh, with satisfaction rubbing his hands together and saying, this is on the hearing the news of Dunkirk. Well, we're on our way now. There was a feeling that we were in the war now, that a certain feeling of resolve about it. Dunkirk had its effect. There were Churchill speeches. We will fight on the beaches and we'll never surrender. And very quickly, daytime air raid, air raid warning started. Again, this, uh, there was this curious thing, just like at the beginning of the war. We expected the worst, and it didn't happen like that. We started getting air raid warnings by day and night, um, Sainsbury's agreed with other shops round about they wouldn't put up shutters immediately but nothing happened the people didn't go home they stayed in the streets so the gentleman's agreement between the shopkeepers was dropped and the shop started to open again even when the air, air raid warnings went and life went on through the summer but things were getting nearer so from this oral account what we can conclude 
is that the period of the phony war that lasted until the spring of 1940 was actually quite bad for British civilian morale because of the sense of uncertainty. Once it was clear that there would be fighting to do and the, the civilian population would bear the brunt of that, that actually does far more to um, galvanise the public around the idea of war than a sense of indecisiveness, of uncertainty as to whether a war is being waged at all. In a previous podcast, we talked about how um, the Battle of Britain came to an unsatisfactory ending for Germany, particularly for um, Reichsmarschall Hermann Göring, Air Minister and Commander-in-Chief of the German Air Force. Um, his poor intelligence um, that assumed that Fighter Command was defeated and his desire to attack London in the hope this would draw RAF planes to uh, the city where they could be destroyed, um, resulted, as we know, on the 21st of August, against Hitler's orders, um, on the first bombing of London. The fact of the matter is that this was probably an error, but it offered Churchill um, a propaganda victory. It meant it gave Churchill um, the... Uh, opportunity to speak in Parliament about uh, air raids over Berlin, which commence. And on September the 2nd, Goering decided that it was time for the Luftwaffe to switch to bombing Britain's industrial and administrative centres and transport hubs and communication links. And the strategy uh, that the German Navy advocated of blockading Britain's ports uh, continued. The decision to take the heat, take the pressure away from the RAF's airfields gave the RAF time to repair, rebuild and re-equip. Um, they only needed a matter of days. And so the Battle of Britain um, began to transition into the Blitz. We haven't really seen the beginning of the Blitz yet because Goering was still attempting to wage the Battle of Britain uh, in order to... Um, wear the British down using aerial bombing over these new targets instead of the airfields as a prelude to an invasion. Once we're in the Blitz, it's not about the possibility of invasion any longer. The whole point of the Blitz isn't to um, create circumstances to invade Great Britain, but to destroy civilian morale to the extent that the British public will beg for appeasement and will get rid of Churchill and that will be the next manner in which Hitler will um, remove the thorn in his side of Great Britain. On September the 4th, Hitler said to the Berlin Sports Palace, where the Nazis um, preferred to call uh, grand rallies for support of uh, wartime policy, he said, The British will understand now, as night after night we give them the answer um, to RAF bombing raids, he was saying, um, when they declare they will attack our towns on a large scale, then we will erase theirs. Three days later, the Hermann Goering spoke on the radio. He said, I now want to take this opportunity of speaking to you to say this moment is a historic one. As a result of the provocative attacks, British attacks, on Berlin in recent nights, the Fuhrer has decided to order a mighty blow to be stuck in revenge, struck in revenge against the capital of the British Empire. 
I personally have assumed the leadership of this attack, and today I hear above me the roaring of victorious German squadrons, which now, for the first time, are driving towards the heart of the enemy in full daylight, accompanied by countless fighter squadrons. After he made that speech, he headed to the Channel Coast, um, where he and other Luftwaffe commanders stood with their binoculars, trained across the Channel, looking at Britain, watching German aircraft fly in formation across the Channel towards uh, London. One eyewitness, the journalist Virginia Cowles, saw the planes come over and the noise that got louder and louder she described as like the faraway thunder of a giant waterfall. She writes, We lay on the grass, our eyes strained towards the sky. We made out a batch of tiny white specks, like clouds of insects moving northwest in the direction of the capital. Some of them, the bombers, were flying in even formation while the fighters swarmed protectively around. During the next hour, we counted over 150 planes. They were not meeting any resistance. At 4.43, air raid sirens sounded across London. Though at first there had been so many false alarms that uh, people took little notice. And one uh, eyewitness, the psychologist Anthony Weymouth, wrote that people are becoming quite used to these interruptions. I do not think that the drone in the sky means death to many people at the moment. It seems so incredible as I sit here at my window, looking out on the fuchsias and zinnias with yellow butterflies playing around each other, that in a few seconds I may see other butterflies circling in the intent of murdering each other. It might be that this form of warfare, of mass aerial attacks on civilian targets, which was relatively new to, well, certainly completely new to people in Great Britain, but relatively new to the world population in general, was part of the cause of this sort of sense of unreality. Normally, when armies meet one another in the field, there is a knowledge that in the sh not too distant future, that there will be an immense amount of chaos and violence, and people will be dying. When war impinges upon the well-constructed um, every day that humanity manages to kind of build for itself within the urban environment and within sort of the civilian world, it is kind of a, a, a fantastical and other notion. And therefore it, it makes sense that it was, it was greeted with that sense of unreality. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. 
So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. The purpose of this force attack, this first attack, uh, as listed, uh, listed by the commands to the first Flieger Corps um, that afternoon, were to um, force English fighters into the air so that they will have reached the end of their endurance at the time of the main attack. And this was to achieve maximum effect. It is essential that units fly as high as a highly concentrated force. The main objective of the operation is to prove that the Luftwaffe can achieve this. The first target of the day was, and the third, first target of the Blitz in general, was uh, Lon- London's docks um, that lay in the east end of London. And docks would feature as major front lines in the Blitz in London, Bristol... Cardiff, Swansea, Liverpool, and other port cities. And this is perhaps why, when the oral histories of the Blitz are told, they're very often working, very often working class histories and histories of working class communities binding together. Why? Because that's where working class people lived, or that is where the working class people would have lived near the docks because of the proximity of Docker's homes to um, the dockside. Certainly where I'm talking to you from today here in, in Cardiff in the UK, um, a vast swathe of the west side of the city from the docks all the way through to the edges of the city centre were working class um, tenement um, homes in the 19th century and the early 20th century built there really to make sure that there was a sufficient labour force for the biggest coal port in the world. And the unfortunate, the tragedy of it as well, is that in the part of London known as Silvertown, where the the docks were at that point, the workers' houses would would be cheek by jowl with warehouses and docks themselves. So there was no delineation between where the workers lived and where the main strategic and industrial targets were. Bombs fell on the Ford Motor Works at Dagenham and hit the Beckton Gas Works, which were the largest gas works in Europe. The three royal docks at Woolwich Reach were hit with bombs. and These were um, stores with foodstuffs and materials for the war effort. And they are, were ablaze within uh, minutes. And the huge importations of timber from the USA, 200 acres of timber, at Surrey Commercial Docks went up in flame. And distilleries, um, soap works, uh, warehouses housing rum from uh, the West Indies, a rubber factory... And the gasworks um, were all hit and damaged, uh, causing huge fires. 
and there was a fear. I mean, some of this stuff that was burning, stuff like rubber and pitch and natural gas, led to the anxiety and panic that the Germans were dropping uh, poison gas, which actually they weren't doing. And of course, all of this pushed the fire services to the very edge. Uh, incendiary bombs were dropping across the docks, lighting wood which had sat through one of the most driest and hottest summers on record that was ready to go up like kindling. The fire services were joined by the wartime auxiliary fire service uh, substations uh, on the docks and the engines that they took with them were often drawn by uh, civilian vehicles, vans, taxis and uh, anything that could be commandeered and had been commandeered at the start of the war. And the drivers, uh, often inexperienced and untrained in dealing with fire, having to come along as uh, part of the package. There was literally nothing that Britain could have done to prepare itself in terms of uh, firefighting for the scale of the task that came ahead. And in this new kind of war, this new type of offensive, new methods of dealing with fire and civilian rescue would have to be learned on the job. The Auxiliary Fire Service had begun recruiting in March 1938 and after the Munich crisis expanded dramatically when it became abundantly clear that war was coming one way or another and it would be an air war against Great Britain. Uh, posters were dotted around London saying keep the home fire fires from burning an inversion of the Ivan Novello song that was popular during the First World War. And there were 15 auxiliaries for every one fireman by the time war broke out in September 1939. None of the firefighters had dealt with fires of the scale and intensity uh, that the first day of the Blitz would create, um, particularly in the wood stacks of East London. Previously mentioned, the uh, uh, Julian Gardner writes. Now it seemed that all the drill they had carefully learned uh, was for another world. As soon as they trained their hoses on one outbreak, another flared up feet away. Damped down by the water jets, a pile of wood would sizzle in the heat and burst into flame again. The firemen worked so fast to screw together the sections of hose and run them into the river so that there was no shortage of water that soon telegraph poles all around the docks were combusting with heat, and even the wooden blocks that surfaced the roads were igniting. Grains spilling out of the warehouse made a sticky mess in the fireman's boots, bogging them down as if they were walking through treacle in some sort of nightmare. By half past six that evening, the uh, Luftwaffe had returned back to uh, the air bases across the Channel, and it seemed as if all was over, but this was but the lull. Um, the, the pattern that was set for the next eight months would be um, the Luftwaffe's first wave would drop incendiary bombs to start fires. The blazers would then act as beacons to guide in subsequent formations of bombers with their high explosive loads. And it would tie up the civil defence services so that the fire, rescue and medical hospitals would be inundated already and so that they wouldn't be ready for the real onslaught when it came. At 8.30, sirens wailed again and the raid would continue until dawn 
adding uh, this uh, added more chaos and devastation to the East End, which was the target again. But bombers spread out um, across the north side of the river, further westwards, bombing uh, Chelsea and Victoria on that night as well. But the docks themselves, the Isle of Dogs, Silvertown and Rotherhithe, um, along with Bermondsey, Canning Town, Woolwich and Deptford, were hit. Um, West Ham, Plasto, Bow, Whitechapel, Stepney and Poplar were also bombed. And the total number of German bombers, uh, Heinkels and Dorniers, uh, was 250 on that particular attack, coming in waves to drop high explosives on the wharfs and the ruined houses and the devastated streets and communities around them. Local fire control centres sent out um, auxiliary fire service riders on motorcycles to scout the streets to find out the uh, most serious concentrations of fire so that they could uh, organise their um, forces adequately. Fire engines um, raced across the east end of the city, um, bells ringing. When fires were designated as conflagrations, where they start to meet up and connect and burn out of control and move rapidly, the um, urgent need of fire engines was allocated to those kinds of blazes. Surrey Docks was a mile, a square mile of blaze by um, the midnight. Cranes, uh, steel cranes, buckled under the intensity of the heat and collapsed into the river. And paint on the fireboats attempting to put out the fire began to blister in the heat. At the Royal Arsenal in Woolwich, many of the buildings that had been uh, there for generations burned and they were packed with live ammunition and uh, high explosives. By the end of that first night of the Blitz, 625 tonnes of high explosive bombs and 800 incendiary bombs uh, had been dropped on London from, as I said, 250 aircraft. There had been a thousand fire engines fighting the blaze at the Surrey docks, 300 pumps and a thousand men trying to contain one of the largest of the fires alone. By dawn, the initiation, the baptism of fire, quite literally, for the firemen um, after the first night of the Blitz, had taken its toll. There were men with blackened faces, physically and mentally exhausted, burning lungs, um, from dust and smoke, um, whose eyes stung and were hungry, thirsty and physically and mentally exhausted. One um, AFS man, uh, who was sent to Beckton Gasworks, said, Chaos met our eyes. Gasometers were punctured and blazing away. A powerhouse had been struck, rendering useless the hydraulic hydrant supply. The overhead gantry bearing lines of trucks communicating with the railway siding was also alight. And then overhead we heard German planes. The searchlights searching the sky in a vain effort to locate them. Guns started firing. And then I had my first experience of a bomb explosion. A weird whistling sound. And I ducked behind the pump with two other members of the crew. The others, scattered as we were, had thrown themselves down wherever they happened to be. Then a vivid flash of flame, a column of earth and debris flying in the air, and the ground heaved. I was thrown violently against the side of the appliance. After a time, 
things quieted down and we went out again. It was now about 10 o'clock and the fire had been burning and attacked by us for a lack of water when a local fire officer arrived and informed us that he knew where we could obtain a supply. Our heavy was sent about half a mile from the fire to pick up water from three other pumps which were being supplied from hydrants. We relayed the water through a chain of pumps to the fire and then there was nothing to do except watch the hose and guard where it crossed an arterial road. So we had to look around. What a sight. About a mile to our right was the riverfront. The whole horizon on that side was a sheet of flame. The entire docks were on fire. On all other sides, it was much the same. Fire everywhere. The sky was a vivid orange glow. And all the time, the whole area was being mercilessly bombed. The road shuddered with the explosions. Anti-aircraft shells were bursting overhead. Our Royal Navy destroyer burst in one of our docks was firing her AA equipment, as were other ships. The shrapnel literally rained down. It was now about midnight, and still the racket kept on. It surprised me how quickly one got used to... sensing whether a bomb was coming our way or not. At first we all lay flat every time we heard anything, but after an hour or so we only died for it as one came particularly close. At 3am, a canteen van arrived and served us tea and sandwiches. It was the first bite any of us had had since midday the day before, 14 and a half hours ago. Just then the bombing became more severe and localised. A bright glow in the sky immediately over us and we saw the flames. Another fire had started in the gasworks, which by now, after six hours concentrated work by us, had, got, had been got well under control. Then a huge mushroom of flame shot in the air, from the docks, follow it by a dull roar. An oil container had exploded. The whole atmosphere became terrible again with the noise of gunfire. Afterwards, when London established its famous anti-aircraft barrage, we got used to it. But on that and the first night, it was just hell. Okay, so I'll be continuing looking at this um, in the next few weeks or so, so stay tuned and we'll go further into looking at how British society changes as a result of the Blitz. I uh, hope you found this useful. If you like this, um, give us a good review on iTunes. Uh, the more good feedback we get, the more of uh, this kind of content we can put out. And also, if you can check out our Patreon page, that would be grand too. Thanks very much. All the best. Bye-bye. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.